Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. Media vita in morte sumus. In the midst of life, we are in death. So goes the medieval antiphon, memorialized as an anthem in the traditional burial rite of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. These words are not meant to instill melancholy, but hope. We live now with the end in mind, so that life now has meaning beyond the mundane things, and even beyond the horrible things too. Indeed, in the cross of Christ, our suffering and death are of infinite worth. In the midst of death, therefore, we are in life. The plain fact of death was unavoidable to our ancestors, and therefore it was a matter requiring sober preparation for the individual and sympathy from his or her community. Moreover, a person's death lived, in a sense, in the ongoing lives of those he or she left behind, as one's gravestone likely stood in the same vicinity as where his or her grandchildren were baptized, received their first communion, got married, and were eventually buried alongside them. But today, death is most of all to be feared, and absurdly, most to be avoided. Avoided, however, only in its messiness. The metaphysical process completely replaced with cold clinicalism. Here today, gone tomorrow. Gone where? Who knows? To the modern medical establishment, sick people are problems requiring solving, or more accurately, enemies to be defeated. When doctors run out of ammunition like pharmaceuticals, surgical options, and therapies, death becomes the final solution, and one quickly prescribed instead of any prolonged existence for a person with no other medical options. But from a purely scientific perspective, do we really understand what it means to suffer and die? And what can we learn from theology? about the spiritual costs of circumventing the natural biological processes for the sake of a secular concept of mercy? Are we better off dead now than enabled to live on until God chooses the time is right? Dr. Stephen E. Doran, MD, is critical of mainstream modern attitudes about death, and he is in a particularly strong position to express his concerns. As a neurosurgeon, a permanent Catholic deacon, and a bioethicist, Doran has a wealth of real-world experience 
accompanying patients, parishioners, and friends and family members all the way to the grave. He understands the complexity of end-of-life decisions, and he knows how to explain the breadth of options available within the purview of the magisterium. And he is most of all concerned that Catholics lead the way in the renewal of a society willing to face and prepare for death as a spiritual passageway. When the end is really the beginning, we plan differently. Dr. Doran has gathered his medical and theological expertise in an incisive volume for a popular audience called To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life, now available from Ignatius Press. His book covers all the bases, from basic medical terminology to personal stories to deep reflections on the most fraught ethical concepts. Dr. Doran's wisdom will surely be welcome among the growing number of people confused and concerned about death and dying. And to discuss how we're all mixed up about death, it is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Doran, very much alive, to the Ignatius Press Podcast. Dr. Stephen Doran, welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm so delighted to be with you today. Well, I'm delighted that you could take the time to join me. I know that our audience will find uh, what you have to say illuminating, because I certainly found that to be the case in your book that we're discussing today, which is called To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. Now, Steve, you're, the title of your book does a lot of work, I think, in um, indicating to us uh, its origin and its purpose. But um, I think it would still be valuable if you would uh, just kind of tell us what prompted you to um, put put this collection of of, uh, of thoughts together for this really accessible uh, book that's just come out from Ignatius Press. Well, thanks. Um, I, I think the the genesis for this began a number of years ago, or even maybe throughout my entire career, where I've noticed um, as a neurosurgeon encountering patients and their families who um, some event happens, whether it's an abrupt event like a hemorrhage, um, head injury or something like that, or even maybe something where there's a little bit more time, um, say a brain tumor or something like that, where where the inevitability or certainly the the, the risk of dying is is clear. And I was always surprised, or many times surprised, how inoften people had really thought about the possibility of their mortality, of their death. And for every person who thought about it, way fewer had prayed about it or contemplated it. And um, so that was kind of brewing in the back of my mind for a long time. It's like, gosh, it's, it just struck me that, you know, like the old saying goes, the one, two sure things in life are death and taxes. And we think about our taxes all the time, but people don't really think about, pray about, contemplate their death. And then also then just the reality of um, being um, in the milieu of complicated issues uh, at the end of life, um, assisted nutrition, withdrawing care, these decisions that um, while I might be dealing with them on a frequent basis, um, it's all brand new and it's all come at a time of crisis for other individuals. And and I thought, gosh, it would probably be helpful if if people had a way to maybe at least um, 
access this a little bit uh, and not be afraid of it. Uh, and so to think about it and to discuss it with uh, those who love them, people who share their faith, and um, and and maybe hopefully lead them to pray about and contemplate their own death. So so yeah, that's the that's the genesis of of why this book came together. Yeah, and Steve, your professional credentials are are impressive and and uh, particularly appropriate for the the subject matter that you that you present to us. You are not only a neurosurgeon, as you've said, but you're also a permanent deacon in the Catholic Church, and you um, you are something of an expert on bioethics. So these you you put these things together, and you know one of the things that readers will discover when they pick up your book is that there are two big sections. One is kind of talking about the medical stuff and like really helping us wrap our heads around what really, what, what things really are, which I found very helpful. I didn't know a lot of the stuff in there and we'll get into some of that. But then the second half is that essential companion piece, which is, okay, we know some medical facts, but now how do we think of that in terms of our kind of the life of our spirit? Like what ultimately we're alive for now, all of that was, was really helpful. And then Added on top of that, you give this wonderful um, personal anecdote at the beginning of the book where you talk about your father-in-law and watching him both live and die as, as an essential component to kind of what spurred your thinking about some of these great things. I wonder if you would just share with our audience, audience something about him and about his influence on you. Yeah, so um, my father-in-law, Mike Lewandowski, um, he, I mean... He was a holy man. I, I don't know where else to start other than that. He was a telephone repairman, um, had um, seven kids, um, five uh, five daughters, two sons. Uh, his faith was just him. I mean, it was integrated. It was fully him. A very um, unassuming man, um, uh, but he he just he just uh, um, loved Jesus, and and it was it was just part of who he was, and and. Um, so I had the, my wife and I dated a long time by today's standards before we got married. We, um, uh, lived in separate States when we were going to college. Uh, I'd spent a lot of time at their house when, when I was home for the summer and, and got to know him well. Um, and when he, uh, became, uh, sick and it was, when it was clear that he was not going to be able to, um, survive he he developed acute leukemia and the initial treatments just didn't work and and so he went home to die and and it was amazing so all the the Lewandowski clan came home with all their many grandchildren or their kids his grandchildren in tow and you know a modest house became essentially a hotel and um and so for a month uh, people a family lived together uh while Mike um died. And it was just amazing. It was, you know, scripture and song and, you know, no, um, frilly, no, no superfluous things. Um, a lot of joy, a lot of tears. Um, and so is this almost, um, uh, I struggle for the word exactly how that process was like, wow, this is, this is so desirable. And I'm recognizing that that type of experience is not um, always going to happen. In fact, most times does have does not happen. But it just was uh, at the time, and then in my memory and recollection, uh, just seeing how extraordinary that whole time was. And and um, you know, when when 
this simple telephone repairman was dying. His house was just, uh, uh, it was like a shrine. All these people coming in, uh, you know, friends of um, his kids coming back. You, you know, don't probably don't remember this, Mr. Lewandowski, but you said this to me, you know, those types of things, those mm. experiences where people had the opportunity and kind of, in a sense, pay homage. I mean, he would, he would bristle at that word himself, but to give honor to this holy man. And, um, you know, that really kind of made me, it was, it was, it was, I mean, I, I don't know that at the time I necessarily recognized the impact it had on me, but over time in the uh, coming months and years, it really kept coming back to that experience and talking about it with my wife. And so, yeah, it was really kind of a pivotal moment on how I started to really think about death and time because up until then, it was just, death was just what happened at the end of life. Yeah. A, a word that, you know, a word that came to my mind as I was reading about uh, about your father-in-law is and his experience dying was the word humane it seemed humane you know he was treated as a person and you you note in your book um that too often kind of in the medical establishment you know a, a person's sickness is treated as kind of an enemy to be defeated and and therefore sometimes the per, the kind of the person in his or her whole being is sometimes not taken into consideration uh, the way that he or she should be is that is that something that you've seen throughout your medical career? Unfortunately, yes, and I, and I think that um, I think the term I use in the book is it's become medicalized that um, you know the spiritual um, realities are entirely ignored and in the emotional realities of someone who's dying, uh, emotional considerations are given a a little bit of attention, but even that it's pretty minimal. The entire focus is on. The biological, the disease, and what what can we do to uh, get rid of it or slow it down? And and um, you know, especially in large academic hospitals, you know, you've got this team of people rounding, discussing the patient outside the room, talking about the patient, developing a plan, presenting data, and and really almost as an afterthought, kind of walk in the door and say, "Oh, hi, Mr. Smith, how you doing? Okay, well, here's the plan. See you later." Mm-hmm. And 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 in the meantime, the the patient is you know, kind of left wondering like, okay, what, what was that all about? What does that mean? To the to the extent that uh, you have to then bring in someone else to kind of explain, like there's care coordinators and nurses who who act almost as interpreters, not almost as, who act as interpreters, who who really do provide that care. And so, so yeah, I, I, unfortunately, that's just how medicine is, um, is, plays out in real world time. It's so infrequent that, um, the emotional and especially the spiritual realities of the dying process are, are addressed in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Let's let's dive into the the first big part of your book, uh, which you call morality, and and appropriately so because you know you you walk us through a whole lot of issues um, in you know real medical issues that that faithful Catholics and and everybody else in the world for that matter really has genuine questions and concerns about. You know, we we want to feel like we're making the right decisions, but we all right. realize that things are so complicated now. You know, like is it is it right to do this? Is it right to do that? Like is this is this going to help someone not suffer or is it you know, there are all these sort of big questions that we have to face not only for ourselves, but for our family members. And you you know, you walk us through some of these really tricky issues right from the start. And maybe we'll just start with this like trio of concerns that you raise. Um well, well I, before we get to that, you know, you, you raise this concern about how do we think about providing for and withdrawing care for terminally ill people? And a couple of the issues that you go into are things like providing nutrition, 
um, uh, the use of a ventilator, and then things like pain medication. Maybe those three things and anything else you'd like to add, what, how, you know, how ought we to think about these things? What are some of the kind of misconceptions that you as not only a medical doctor, but as a faithful Catholic can kind of speak to us about? Well, yeah, and I, I'm glad you chose those three things because those are things that come up with especially um, high frequency. Um, to your point about having things, you know, having access to tools or to understand, help guide things, one of the things that's been edifying about this so far is I've had a number of people say, um, oh, my goodness, I, I'm so glad I read your book because I've been questioning, I've been doubting the decisions I made for my mom or my dad last year. And it's just been nagging at me. And I didn't know that I do the right thing. And and it helped uh, them to realize that, you know, I, with the information I had at the time, I did the best that I could. And as it turns out, yeah, it was, it was appropriate. Or the other side of the coin is people say, I'm so glad to know this now. So I've, you know, it helps me because I have a parent going through it right now, you know, and so the, um, I, I've had a number of people say that. Um, you know, the, the issues of of nutrition, ventilators, pain control, all those things are 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 frequent enough that I, I think it's important that um, we have some understanding of it. I, there's other things in the in the book that are maybe not quite as uh, um, universal, but it's almost almost everybody will have to deal with this in one way or another with either for themselves or for a loved one. So I think it is important to address those things. And um and to focus on them, that's why they're why they're there. I think one of the most important things for us to remember as we're talking about this topic, and to draw back for just one moment, is you know we talk a lot about death and dying, and and I think it's important for us, and, and that's part of the spiritual part of the book. But I think foremost in our minds, we have to say what is death? What is death? Because we become so focused on the biological realities of the heart stopping and no more breathing, and that's death. The brain's dead. Whatever criteria you want. For us, as 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 those who believe in 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 Jesus and um, death is this unnatural separation of the body from the soul. We are a composite body and soul, and death is when those two things split. And we have to have that as our underlying idea of what death is, because then, with that in mind, then it helps us at least have a foundation and a starting point when we start getting to particulars. Okay, what what does it mean to withdraw nutrition? Well, okay, what does that mean? to the person who's dying with in the back of our mind saying, okay, a person's dying. What does that mean? You know, their, their body is going to be departed from their soul. Cause it, it forms a foundation of one of spirituality rather than one of technicality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You did it. You did a nice job with that. And maybe to, to connect up something that you were, you were saying a moment ago, you get, you go into this question of brain death a little bit in, in the book. And that was something I found particularly interesting. And it's a question that it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one that is still, our understanding of what that is, is still developing to some degree. And and the church is trying to think right alongside the medical community in what, what ultimately that means. So could you say something about this question of brain death? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that you're exactly right. Is that if anything, in the past few years, it's it's been kind of especially elevated in in the uh, public eye. You know, for for almost all of you know um, the history of the world, someone was dead when they stopped breathing and their heart stopped. You know, you remember the old Western movies, right? You you put the mirror in front of their face and well, they're dead. And and so that was the definition of death until really until the 50s and 60s when when all of a sudden the need for organs for organ transplantation kind of created a new 
need for uh, determining death, you know, because you can't take an organ, an unpaired organ, that is, and give it to somebody else because that's going to kill them. You can't take their heart. If they're, if they're not dead, you will be the one causing their death. You can take a kidney, but you can't take all of their liver. You can't take their lungs. You can't take their heart because you're going to be killing the patient. So, so with the first heart transplant, very quickly, um, um, ethicists are like, oh, wait a minute, how can we do this ethically? And so Harvard convened this committee and, and developed this idea um, that, well, you are dead when your brain is dead. And that was a new thing. And there was prior to that, the idea that death was defined by a, a brain that was not functioning was not part of the uh, the the communication. So the Harvard committee got together, developed a criteria to say it started with the premise that you're dead when your brain is dead. So it kind of begged the question a little bit. So we're going to put together a series of um, directives and or a series of standards that say if these things are met, then the person's brain is dead and therefore the person is dead. And so that's been the standard for a long time. But with technology uh, and our ability to maintain individuals on, on life support, we've been challenged by people who've been declared brain dead, who then went on to survive weeks and sometimes even months. Uh, women who were declared brain dead, who uh, uh, were maintained on a ventilator, allowing the, the the baby to develop and successfully deliver a baby. Um, and even more recently, um, uh, and this is so recent, wasn't even the book where um, some um, scientists have had patients who were declared brain dead and then put a genetically modified pig kidney in them to see if that could be an alternative to uh, human kidneys. And the last I looked, one patient had been alive for two months, had been declared brain dead, and had a pig kidney in them that was functioning. And so it just raises all sorts of quandaries like, well, if this person isn't dead, then you're doing experiments on a live person against their will. And if your patient is dead, how can they be dead? I mean, it just, it just becomes mm -hmm. mind boggling after a while, which has given rise to more interest in saying, well, maybe... Maybe, you know, actually part of the brain still is functioning. We can't measure it, a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. And so that's what's allowing this to happen. So, um, so yeah, our criteria are valid, but we really can't measure the hypothalamus. And I know I'm getting a little down in the weeds, and I'm really sorry for that. But it's really become a very complicated issue uh, that has become more and more an issue here recently, driving some national organizations to throw out the idea of brain death altogether and say, hey, we can take organs as long as someone's sick enough. So that you know, we hear that slippery slope argument and it, it really holds true in this area. Mm -hmm. Well, and that leads me to to this concern about utilitarianism. Now, um, this was this was an issue that uh, St. John Paul II wrote about. He, he, he was really concerned about being overly utilitarian in a bunch of different ways. And I think Pope Benedict XVI was as well. And I noticed that you used... Um, uh, one of his books, Eschatology, Death and Eternal Life, which is a, a really great book that people oh, ought, to, awesome book. ought to get. And so, yeah, yeah, I was really pleased to see that like theological texture that you that you added to to these questions, you know. But, you know, so the utilitarian thing, um, this question, you know, it certainly relates to things like organ donation. 
But then it's also so bound up with the the question of euthanasia and physician, you know, so-called physician-assisted suicide and all these kinds of things. Like, what use is a person in XYZ state, you know, or or like sort of what's the medical responsibility to people and what's our responsibility to society or maybe in other countries where they have healthcare systems that taxpayers pay for and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder just, you know, that's that's kind of open-ended, but I wonder if you could just comment on where we are now kind of culturally in the conversation about uh, euthanasia, because I know it's still something that is, you know, it's still very much a topic that's, you know, that's on on ballots. I mean, it's it's something that, you know, it's something that our political leaders have to have to make decisions about. So where where do you sort of assess where we are on that question now? So if you look at the United States and you look at Canada, I think it's important to look at them together, but yet also separate because they have, they're different um, laws. Um, in the United States, um, by and large, um, people would refer to euthanasia here as um, you know, physician-assisted suicide, meaning that a physician prescribes a, a, a lethal amount of a medication that the patient then ingests and then they die. Whereas in in um, Canada and in, in other countries in the world, like Belgium and places like that, the the process is much more active in that uh, patients are um, given a, a physician uh, infuses medications, IV to stop the heart, to stop the breathing, you know, and so it's a much more um, more direct action. Now, more morally, there's really no difference, right? You're still for a physician, whether they're the one just providing the medication and the patient goes away or the physician who's pushing a syringe, well, it's morally no different. But from a practical perspective, it makes a big difference. And you look at Canada, you know, the number of patients who have um, been killed uh, with what they call medical aid and dying, that's their euphemism form, has just skyrocketed. Um, now, um, in the United States, we the, the absolute numbers are significantly less uh, proportionally, but yet the rise, if you look at the curve of the increase of uh, physician-assisted physician suicide in the United States and medical aid and die in Canada, they both follow a very similar curve of rapidly increasing growth. It has come to the point in Canada, and this kind of circles back to this idea of organ donation, they now, it is legal in Canada to euthanize a patient and take their organs. So mm -hmm. now we've inserted an even more complicated thing here. Now we've inserted a party who has this vested interest in this person's organs. It's just a quagmire um, mm -hmm. up there. And so, yeah, the, culturally, this is, this is uh, not going away. It's just getting worse. And we've just had this baby, the story about this baby in the UK, uh, and we've had a number of stories like this that are that are startling to Catholics. Uh, I don't right. know if you have any comments about that kind of thing, not necessarily that specific case, but just these issues where there's, you know, there's a judgment made, essentially, that, you know, this this child is not going to live or, you know, whatever. And so, therefore, these are the measures that need to be taken against maybe the will of the parents or the or the individual themselves. I don't know if you have any comments about that. Yeah, I think it, that's why it's important to kind of go back to what it does. It, what does it mean for us to be human? We're made in the image and likeness of God, and we're a unified body and soul. And if you separate that, if you if you fall into this dualism, you know, and separate the spiritual from the from the biological, um, that leads to all sorts of problems in society. That leads to utilitarianism. That leads to and 
whether it's at the end of life or the beginning of life or everywhere in between, if we forget about who we are as human, that we have a soul that was infused to us uh, at the moment of our conception, and then grace poured out into us uh, through baptism and the other sacraments, if we lose sight of that, well, in some ways, it doesn't, it's not all that surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, if the bio- biological reality is that this person is going to die, they're decaying, why don't we just hurry along the process? What's it matter? Where's the harm? This a baby in the UK or some other place has a hopeless, terrible disease. If we're not concerned about their soul, sure, they're 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 in a state of decay that's inevitable. So why not why not just let it happen? Why not hurry the process along? So it's not surprising considering how we've entered into this dualism in in our society now. Mm-hmm. And to come back to the that great book by Pope Pope Benedict XVI, you know, he you 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 point out that. You know, he's very concerned in that book that we're kind of losing metaphysics. Like we're just it, we we right. don't. You know, the church has the the church has always understood that the process of dying, which is, you know, in a sense, like also the process of living, is is for our our ultimate. You know, it's for our salvation. I mean, in a sense, like our you know even our suffering, right? I mean, these things that we go through are are meant for not only for our own. Um, our own salvation, but they're in a strange way, they're for the good of the people around us, you know? Um, and so we're kind of like cutting, we're cutting off the, uh, you know, an important, an important kind of spiritual thing by just rushing along to what you said before, just this kind of medicalized view of, of death and dying. Yeah, no, I, I agree that, that, that if people, when they hear the word metaphysics, they roll their eyes and think this is, you know, academic, blah, blah, blah they're so far wrong. It, it, it is so important for us. And even if we can't articulate it succinctly and I, just to have a, a kind of a sense within us, like, well, wait a minute, this is, there's something about this that isn't right, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think us, I think that's an important part of our culture in general that, that just needs to, to be kind of re uh, reeducated on. I mean, when I get the opportunity to preach, I try to bring in some of these things, not in, not in some teachy way, but to, to point out some of these important things about what, why do we believe certain things, right? They're not arbitrary. They're not based in whimsical thoughts. There's a, there's a foundation to what we teach, what we believe in our spiritual, theological, philosophical world that grounds all these issues that we're talking about in this book, right? Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is just the tail end, you know, the specifics of brain death, euthanasia, whatever it might be. That's the final end point, but we have to be able to be back at the foundation to really make sense of this stuff. Otherwise it's just another list of rules. Yeah. Yeah. Very well put. And I think that, you know, that goes hand in hand with just how even Catholics now sort of think of our faith as just, you know, rules rather than a description of reality, a life-giving reality, you know, that we we're invited into and the, there are many things related to our lives, but also things related to our death that are so much bigger than just a kind of brute rationalist explanation can provide. Um, and maybe maybe on that note, uh, one more thing before we we um, take a look at the the second big part of your book. I was I was interested in just from my own perspective, like thinking about my own parents and family members and things, how we prepare for death with our loved ones. And you you make a note. I think you made a very convincing case in your book that living wills are not necessarily the best thing. Could you say a little more about that? Yeah, you know, it's 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 become part of our. I don't know how this happened, but this has been going on for probably twenty years or more. Where all of a sudden, you know, people are planning their estate, and oh yeah, by the way, you need a living will. Okay, I'll 
do a living will. What is that? So living wills came about as a planning tool, not grounded from the church's perspective, but grounded with estate planning, to be honest with you. Um, and then it made its way into, you know, use in the medical world. Um, the living will is this document that um, someone in advance uh, tries to outline the type of care that they would want or not want. And at face value, that seems reasonable. But the problem is that sometimes with living wills become very, very specific. And all of a sudden, you've got this document that says, I want this or I don't want that. And the circumstances, no one knows what's going to happen when you die. You're not going to know the circumstances of when you're going to die. And to have this laundry list of what you want or what you don't want just doesn't, it's not that helpful. And in fact, it can be harmful in some situations. And and so, so I personally would... Um, Yes, I would discourage living wills because I don't think you need them. I think what you need is a durable um, power of attorney for medical care. You need a person who you know, who trusts you, or you trust, I should say, who knows your faith and um, is then in a position to make decisions for you in the event that you can't. Because all those uh, n uh, numerous circumstances that could never be anticipated can now be held together and say, okay, here's what the reality is. We've had this discussion. I've talked with you know my loved one, and and I know I under, have an understanding of what they would want at their death. But now I can apply the specific you know, what the specific problems are and apply what I know about them. So I mean, I think that's all you really need. And if someone has a living will, I'm not saying you have to tear it up, but if you don't have a durable power of attorney for medical care, that's probably the most important thing. Yeah. And I wondered, Steve, as I was reading in this kind of individualized, individualistic, atomized society that we have, if people actually think they want to spare their loved ones the burden of having to have these sort of these big decisions on their conscience. And so they want to get these things taken care of themselves. But actually, I mean, it is just the most beautiful thing in the world, really, to reframe it and think, you know, I, it, it's, it's, it's giving a gift in a sense to a person that they can accompany me as maybe I'll be able to accompany someone else in making these big decisions of life and death. I mean, that's, that's what we're here for, for each other. That's, that's Christian charity, basically. I don't know if you see it that way, but that struck me. No, oh, I think that's very well said. I think because what, what, what a living will kind of does is it's like, I'm going to do this checklist and then just going to put it on the shelf and then someone can pull it off the shelf later and it'll be easy for them. And we can, we can make death as, um, you know, uh, efficient as possible, mm -hmm. you know, um, I remember one time someone said to me, you know, efficiency is not a virtue, Steve, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and because I tend to to, to uh, be probably overly efficient in what I do. F efficiency is not a virtue. Efficiency isn't what we ought to seek uh, for ourselves or other people when we're dying. And I think that's what living wills are trying to do. Let's make this process efficient. Mm -hmm. And then you miss out, right? You miss out on the conversations prior to that time and you... Um, and, and it's a painful process, an extraordinarily painful, sad process to kind of enter into the reality of someone dying. But it's also a very holy, a very sacred time. And, and to invite someone into that process in advance to say, I love you so much that I want you to be there to speak for me. There, that's such an intimacy, right? There's such an intimacy in that time. And it's, it is the it's one of the greatest compliments that you could ever give somebody mm -hmm. is to say, I trust you. And can you help me when I can't help myself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, that, I, I think that's a message that a lot of, a lot of readers will, 
appreciate and I hope that they they take it to heart. That's also a good segue really to the second part of your book. And um, again, just really love the structure, how the the first part is kind of the, you know, the more kind of medical questions with a lot of spiritual stuff infused. But then the second part really wants to get to the heart of the what these things mean for us in in our faith and um you say this um you say the basic premise that someone who lives a good life tends to die a good death seems self-evident but the measure of a good death is not the same as the measure of an easy death we've we've already touched on some of this before but i thought that was a particularly good quote to lead us into the second part of the book so i wonder if you could elaborate that on that one a little bit for us well, and, and this, you know, ties in with the whole assisted suicide, you know, euthanasia movement is that the mark of a good death is one that's peaceful, serene, um, free of pain, uh, surrounded by loved ones. And by all means, that is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that is a desirable thing. And I desire that uh, for myself, for the people I love. That would be wonderful. But that's not a good death. I mean, in the sense that it, who who died the the greatest death, the best death of all was Jesus, and he suffered mm-hmm. the most horrific death. And yet, that is the good death par excellence. I mean, that is the most excellent death. The saints, the martyrs, all these people who 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 suffered terribly. If we start having the measure of a good death being peaceful, serene, pain free, then we're not understanding what what a good death is, and. And, and and what what transforms a death into a good death is the hope of the resurrection. You know, that's that's what that's what a good death is. And that that preparation for death, that hope of the resurrection, the knowledge of the resurrection of is is what makes our deaths good. And that begins at our baptism. That's mm-hmm. not I mean, it can begin, uh, you know. Um, and, and hopefully is infused with with grace throughout our lives. But that process for dying begins at our baptism with the grace infused at our baptism because it is the hope of the resurrection that makes us have a good death. It's not because we're pain-free or uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, Steve, this is a little, a little not, not something to go into in your book, but I was thinking about this throughout. I, I heard... Um, I heard a, a, an Anglican um, New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, talk mm-hmm. about how the default philosophy of our world today is Epicureanism. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and one of the major principles of Epicureanism, going all the way back to the ancient world, is that there is nothing redemptive about suffering. Nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I, that really bowled me over when I heard him say that, because that explains so much, you know, that if we really don't have a theology of the cross and the empty tomb, um, then yeah, then of course euthanasia makes sense. Then of course, like all, of, go ahead and medicalize all these things because there's no, there's nothing valuable in any of it. But we just don't believe that. And you know, I think that people who, um, it, the thing is that we all do face suffering and we all are going to lose people and all that sort of thing. So it seems to me that the choice before us is to either, you know, buy the lie of Epicureanism and like you know, this just kind of you know deal with it and then put it away and then deal with whatever cognitive dissonance that may create in us, or we can face it and and be courageous about it. And it's painful, but it'll be it'll be good for us in a way. You know, do you do you find that true? Well, I find it true. I th- I, I'm 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 glad you brought that up. There's there's no new sin and there's no new heresy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean these these things continue to circulate. They continue to percolate. Uh, whether it's epicureanism or the dualism, all these things are, they've, they've always been there, you know, and people yeah. have just various times described them. So 
so yeah, I, I, I do think this idea that um, of suffering to be avoided at all costs is is has permeated our culture. Um, and and there, there's a distinction between pain and suffering that I think is important too. I think because not all pain is suffering. You know, um, the pain of of uh, working out you know, for your football team or the pain even of childbirth, I think most people wouldn't perceive as suffering. And so there's an even deeper level there of what suffering is. And there's a there's a reality at the psychological level, the spiritual level of suffering, which then allows that to become redemptive. It allows it to become, uh, allows us to re, uh, to unite that with with Christ and to make up for what's lacking, right? That's mm-hmm. what's lacking, as it says in Colossians, is our suffering, our lives, that enable us to be redemptive for the world. And so absent that, then yeah, it's, 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 it's just, um, um, uh, pain is, is, is we'll tolerate if it has a, a use for us, but otherwise we're going to avoid it at all costs. You know, when I was writing this book, I had a, a conversation with a, a neurosurgeon who, um, I trained with who's a culturally Jewish, but atheist and I called him and I talked with him because he had written his own book, about his sister who died. And, and so I was really curious. And I, and I said to him, I said, I said, Jody, what do you think about suffering? Is there any, anything good about suffering? And he was very quick to say, nope, there's nothing, nothing good about suffering, mm-hmm. nothing good about suffering. And, 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 and I guess for someone who doesn't believe in a suffering savior, well, sure, there's nothing good about this. But mm-hmm. if we believe in someone who suffered, who made themselves human for our sake, died for us, it means everything then. Mm-hmm. Sure does. Let's stick with suffering for one more minute then, because you have a you have a chapter in your book about this almost sort of epidemic of despair that we that we face in our world today. Um, you know, I I don't I don't know that I have a specific question about how this relates to kind of the medical preparation for death and all that kind of thing, but gosh, it sure does seem that there are people who. Um, are not prepared for death because they they're going through life as if they are already dead. Is that, is that sort of the way that you see it? Well, I think that what happens is, is that um, they ignore it. They, even though they know it's inevitable, they, they just put it out of their minds. And then when the reality starts to approach either in themselves or in a loved one, then that despair can and does settle in because all of a sudden now everything's meaningless, right? everything I work for is, is going away and all the things of my life, all the attachments I have in my life are gone. And then there's nothingness. And if there's nothingness, that is going to bring despair. I mean, Mm -hmm. if there's nothing, despair follows immediately. So yeah, I think with this, with, um, you know, all sorts of things, you know, consumerism, you know, I mean, you can go down the list of all these things that we attach ourselves to at, uh, and, and at, and forsake, you know, um, the reality of of who we are um, as made in the image and likeness of God, you know, beloved daughters and sons of God. If we don't have that, then yes, death brings despair, mm-hmm. no doubt. Mm-hmm. And it seems like if we're if we're just medicating our despair with drugs and pornography and you know whatever and you name it, right? Then when things really really are so awful that we're you know or that we become really sick or something like that it's it's easy then to just say well i'll just take a little bit more of the thing that's been medicate you know i mean I, I hate to put it so bluntly i mean people who have experienced loss of of loved ones due to drug addiction and that sort of thing it's such a, a painful process but i mean it's it's in a sense no surprise that that so much of this is happening now and it, it is really heartbreaking and you know i think as you as you show in a number of different ways in the second part of the book you know that the solution is is not is not 
we need help. You know, we need we have we need a redeemer, and we have one. And you know, and he can make sense of of so much of this for us. Absolutely, yes. Let's um in in our last uh, we, well we got a little bit of time left, but in, in as we wind down, I, I was uh, I liked your chapter about funerals, and I I think that you know I would I would guess that you as a as a deacon are involved in that kind of care at least from time to time, and what what is that like for you? Not only as a clinician, as somebody who's like you know helping people and you know treating people from the medical side, but are also there you know, putting people in the ground, proclaiming the words of hope that the church offers to the bereaved, you know, what, tell us a little bit about that, that side of your ministry and what it means to you. You know, um, I'm, I'm so grateful and, and blessed to be a Catholic, never more so than when I'm at a Catholic funeral. Um, and even before I became ordained, I'd always was struck by like, I'm so glad I'm Catholic, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I'm at this funeral and, and like, um, you know, the, the opening wake service, I'm going to, you know, butcher it. I can't remember the exact words, but some, it says something to the effect that, you know, the bonds that we formed here on earth are not separated by death, you know? So immediately there's this, this reality of like, yeah, this person is dead, but they're not gone, you mm-hmm. know? So immediately at the very beginning of the, of the, um, uh, the vigil, the wake service right away, we're reminded of, you know, this, this, um, you know, this continuum, this, this, the eternal nature of our souls, right? Mm-hmm. Our bodies are not eternal, um, but our souls are. And, mm-hmm. and so the, 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 the Catholic funeral, right? The wakes, all those things are just so rich. And, and, and if you look at them deeply, you see, again, it comes back to these very fundamental basic principles of, of our faith, of philosophy and theology. So I love funerals. I love wakes. Um, it's always an honor to be a part of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of the saddest days, but also the most profound days of my life. And especially since I've been ordained a deacon was preaching at the funeral of my nephew who mm. had committed suicide. Mm. And it was just, I, I mean, it, it, that whole event, that whole day being part of that, um, it, it goes beyond words and it would take hours to explain what that experience was like, not only for me, but for his family, but it's been a huge part of my, my ministry to be involved with it. Yeah, and I've just always found, just to echo what you've said, that the the church, the church's liturgy says it all. It says what we can't say. It says right. what we don't know how to say. It consoles us in ways that we couldn't ever possibly spontaneously offer to each other. And so I just, you know, I just I love that you you put that in there. Um, last thing that that you know kind of ties to the funeral, the the funeral question, but then also. Come, brings back to some of these sort of ethical questions is you you end the book or not quite in the book, but towards the end of the book, you talk about cremation, right? which is another big issue that pretty much every family now faces unless they just have a very elaborate arrangement taken care of beforehand um, to, to actually have, you know, have a, an expensive coffin and, right. and plot in a cemetery and all that sort of thing. Now you rightly point out that Cremation is not a heresy. It is not. It is allowed by the Catholic Church, but that it also it it's imperfect in some respects as a way to to kind of say to 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 dispose. I hate to use the word dispose, but in a sense to sort of you know deal with uh, a dead body. So I don't know. Could you say a little more about that for us? Because I know there will be a lot of curious listeners on that question. Yeah. So so um, as as you mentioned, the church. The church has a strong preference for bodily burial, mm-hmm. and um, but it, um, 
uh, allows cremation. Mm -hmm. uh, it recognizes that there, unfortunately, can be um, financial concerns. Um, it's expensive to have a funeral with a, ca a, ca a coffin and all that. Uh, cremation is is certainly um, uh, much less expensive. So there are some practical con concerns that, that the church recognizes. It's not always been that way, mm -hmm. but that's been in more recent decades that it's that's done that. But there still is a strong preference for for bodily burial, and and it's not. And so so you know the cynic says, well, the, what you know if there's a resurrection, what does it matter if you're ashes or whether you've been decomposed in a coffin? That's the same, right? Well, theologically it is, but what it speaks to is we have a dignity throughout our entire life from the moment of our conception until our natural death. There's also a, there's a dignity that needs to be afforded to someone's remains, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think I tell the story of, I mentioned the story of Diogenes who wanted his body fed to the dogs, you know, and, and we know that there's, you know, there's a gut level thing that this is, uh, there's respect that's due, but so, but that's even kind of, creeping further down the road. And I have this in one of the footnotes that what's becoming more popular now are things like alkaline hydrolysis, where basically you use um, a very strong uh, base, not an ass, but a base to dissolve the body. Mm. And, um, uh, or what's even more so the, what's called body composting, where you literally uh, put the body in a special bag and it decomposes that way. And the you know the bishops have kind of come out and said no no this stuff is too far you know body mm -hmm. composting no uh huh so it does draw a line because we 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 ought to treat our loved ones remains with respect and dignity so for the person who who is cremated uh, that still means that those um, those ashes need to be treated with respect they need to be properly interned someplace you don't put them on your mantle you don't spread them out someplace you don't have a, of an artificial diamond made out of it or an amulet mm -hmm. that you wear around your neck. So even if there is cremation, there still is a, a necessity to, to treat uh, those remains with dignity. Yeah. I mean, although, as you, as you say, you said much earlier in our interview that, you know, death is the separation of the body from the soul, but the body is not bad. The body is not a, right. a prison for our soul, right? right? I mean, we, we are body and soul. And so, you know, to not treat the body like that, which will be resurrected with the soul is, it's not, it's not theologically, um, it, it's just not, it's just not right, you know, so um, it's kind of Gnostic, I suppose, or, or, you know, you said you used the word dualistic before, I think, I think that that kind of is, um, is, is getting at, is getting at what, you know, the way that cremation sort of assumes things. So I, I found your chapter very helpful. Okay. Um, you say right at the end of the book, Steve, I hope this book will encourage people to think about death and dying in advance and will serve as a catalyst for conversation and prayer that helps us prepare to die well. I, I certainly found this to be the case, and I know that uh, our readers who pick up your book will um, find the same thing. Your book is called To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. Dr. Stephen Doran, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today on the Ignatius Press Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless. <laughs>